Hello and welcome to Moments of Clarity. My name is Matthew Sortino and with me I have Toby Kent. Hey Matt, how are everyone? How are you? I'm well. Yeah? Yeah. Yourself? Fantastic, fantastic. I'm going to say fantastic. That's Although positive. I That's... was annoyed this morning. I was annoyed Again. this morning. Again. <laughs> so, I don't know, I've got an issue, Toby. I've got an issue. Is this one for the air or? It's, it's an on-air issue. Right. I'll, I'll probably regret it but um, as people try to push my buttons. But what I hate, what I despise is being blamed or, or targeted. Fuck up, Les. <laughs> for things that I haven't done. You know, to be accused, I think is the word that I'm looking for, of an act that is not, was not done by me. And this happened this morning. So... You know, out at the council uh, injection clinic, not the safe injecting clinic. Right, okay. <laughs> Glad you clarified. <laughs> my, my, my morning meetings. My, uh, we need more of those though, but um, I wasn't there. I was at the, the council run for the flu injection. My partner who's pregnant and my daughter both were getting their flu shot. And the instruction at the door, Toby, was this. And, and what would you do? Fill out the paperwork, grab a mask, fill out the paperwork and go to the desk. So what what would you do if those were your instructions? Really honestly, I'd probably grab a mask, make a mess of filling out the paperwork. I'm terrible at paperwork. And then I'd go to the person at the desk and say, sorry, I think I messed up the paperwork. <laughs> but I'm ruining your story, I can tell. This is not how it's... <laughs> I like that you drew it. Okay, I'm visualising you ruining the paperwork. But um, we, we filled it out perfectly, mind you. You I'd know, expect nothing less. I mean, uh, yeah. well, you know, I'm, I'm you don't get to be a high-profile teacher without right. form-filling skills. Yeah, middle, middle profile. <laughs> but um, I go to the desk, and as I'm on my way, it's excuse me, excuse me, a staff member's, you know, yelling out. There's a line. There's a line. What do you think you're doing? You, there's all these people in front of you, and you think you can skip the line? So I got upset. I didn't, I didn't say anything too upsetting, but I had a face and I, I said, can I just explain that my instructions were very clear and I just followed instructions and they just let me through and we got, we got, we got seen straight away. We skipped the line. And yet you're still <laughs> upset. But I'm upset that I was accused and I, I just had to reflect on what one of my triggers is, being accused of a crime, in this case not a crime, but a poor behaviour that I didn't commit. So, um, yeah, and I think one of my reflections, and you're saying that we've spoken about how important it is for this podcast to be inclusive and, and demographically somewhat representative. We are conscious that we're two men of a certain age, and, and I, I just think it's great that nothing says grumpy middle-aged man like can i start with what really upset me <laughs> and it was such an inane pointless <laughs> story but no no I, there is a but i mean okay so i'll be more generous there is a real thing to that i think for all of us right the that sense of because it there, there are several triggers in that right it's that loss of control it's that what do you mean i haven't done anything wrong and yet you're telling me i have and so there's there's the slight upon your personality there's that yeah, but I'm just going about my life and I'm doing the right thing. And then even, as I say, that loss of control bit in terms of, but how do I correct this? Because if, if I can't correct this, then the world is at odds mm. or, or wrong. And so my instinct is that's probably a really common upset for people, actually. Just that it could be on so many different scales mm. that it works, but just that general sense of I've been accused 
Yeah. yeah. And, and on that, quickly, I think we often don't know what people that we're interacting with, what their trigger might be, what their value set might be, that where they feel that accusation or that that issue. And maybe on this reflection, you know, about what, what I felt was maybe um, that when I'm interacting with someone, there's going to be a whole layer of stuff that that is, you know, surrounding that person's day, their, their year, their, their life that we need to consider. And so... Instead of that just being a complaining, grumpy old man or middle-aged, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I was, I was which, conscious which, as I said that, that I'm aging you a little bit. Which, um, <laughs> but I act like one who, um, I can't stand new music, so that's a, that's a sign. <laughs> but um, to bring it back, yeah, it is that just ability to reflect, you know, instead of me getting upset. What was her day like? She was quite stressed and, and wanting to ensure everything was fine. So, you know what? I'm going back there. I'll give her a sticker and um, from my teaching collection, and, and we'll go from there. I'm sure she's looking forward to it. <laughs> so I've been thinking about something, Toby, about living in an urban space. We are attached as people to what we interact with most often, and and you know, on a, on a daily basis, we would come into contact with the buildings, the the the, the built world, the human built world. And, you know, we see a fence that's dilapidated and we comment on that. We might comment on render that's dripping. You know, I, I find myself doing, oh, how you know badly built were those apartments or what's going on with that fence? Or, But we never, I, I feel like I don't do that enough with nature. Maybe we don't have the opportunity to see what's going on with nature. And I'm, I'm wondering what is the solution or what is a way that we can better understand and feel connected to nature and the environment and the natural world while living in an urban location is the choice leaving it and decentralizing deurbanizing our communities is it reforesting our urban spaces or is there something we can do right now that doesn't require huge system change i'm going to go with all of the above and we are in a time particularly in the urban age more than half the world now lives in urban areas and we require profound systems change. As you know, I'm a huge fan of urban forestry. So the ability to bring nature back into the city is going to be a really important part of our future. Uh, the challenge or the assumption that is actually in part of your framing in terms of decentralizing cities and so forth is actually what we can least afford to do. The future of the planet actually relies on keeping humans contained uh, or in making us become more contained within urban environments. Because if 7 billion people were to have the quarter of an acre block, that is the kind of classic post-settlement Australian dream, the game's over, right? So cities are actually a great way of managing our footprint. Density can be a good thing. And what we need to do is create buildings that have nest boxes to start to embrace more wild-looking gardens, promote more use of indigenous and native plants because actually, with some exceptions, a lot of our native animals can't necessarily uh, feed off or digest some of the more exotic things that we bring in from overseas. So, And then you asked about our connection with nature. I think... If we were to really transform the urban space, it would make it easier for people to appreciate nature, 
and that becomes self-perpetuating. The flip side or the challenge in this is if you take Australia specifically, where we've had the fastest rate of animal extinction anywhere in the world in the last couple of hundred years and, and, and in recent decades. And I think part of the challenge is that Australia looks so beautiful and green. So there's a, a kind of a perverse situation whereby when people see more nature and, and, uh, and it's just on their doorstep, they might also think that everything is okay. So we've got a, a need to do more, a need to change the form of our cities and make nature more accessible. But we also, I guess, uh, hopefully, I, I guess maybe where the ideal is, in doing that, it creates the path to educate more. So people can also then say, wow, I really value that, but I didn't realise also what we were lo- losing. Yeah, we're hearing about what we're losing. We're hearing about what we're losing, but... I guess what makes it real is when people drive on highways and see less bug splatter on their windshields. That's a reason to, oh, I, I sort of understand the insect, you know, destruction that we're, we're causing. Or when you go digging for worms in your garden and you don't find them anymore or witchy grubs or whatever it might be. Or, or you don't have soil to dig in anymore. It's, you know, a layer of, you know, sand, you know, a little bit of soil on sand. Yeah, there is a, the, the issue where we might be looking out into the national park or into the beautiful botanic gardens or whatever and say, oh, we're, we're fine here and we're not actually seeing what's going on around our country. The other thing I wanted to touch on was you said we need more density or it's potentially more density is good and that the quarter-acre block dream is unsustainable. But I wonder if the quarter-acre block with its soil, its its land and its... um backyard and front yard with a garden with a tree with some fruit trees with veggie patches and stuff like that isn't that going to be better than the built-up multiple units on a block without any green space than than what we've got i mean i'm guessing that what you're saying is the risk is to have urban sprawl that's way beyond what we've currently got which is horribly damaged to the ecosystems exactly around but isn't what what we need to somehow not just have concrete, and you said reforestation, but what does that look like? What would it look like to have cities that are actually holding in the carbon that we need and and giving life, uh, you know, a life giver rather than a life taker? Yeah, so it'll be a blend of the most traditional. So we need really healthy parks and gardens with trees uh, and, and, and small plants it's not just about trees um when i talk about urban forests or um uh, you know or forests in cities and so forth it's about really about the qualities of a forest so it's about healthy soils healthy diversity of plants or relative diversity of plants as well as the the large iconic trees and it'll be a blend of of that traditional stuff with also technology so carbon absorbing materials used in buildings um, and those buildings will themselves have green walls uh, and green roofs. Um, the biodiversity crisis is one that, you know, it's funny that, you know, for all of the politics in Australia and so forth, that in many ways this concept of carbon has been so understood and accepted, and we haven't managed to communicate that all those cuddly little beautiful cute creatures are going. And I think we're going to wake up to that once, and people will start to latch onto that even faster uh, than the climate change piece. So we have to go back to seeing ourselves as part of nature. We have 
in the in the Western sort of philosophy tradition, certainly for the last few hundred years, absolutely seen uh, as being humans and nature, uh, and they are inherently at loggerheads, and, and, and our future has to be part of understanding ourselves whilst distinct and unique, also fundamentally part of nature. Thanks, Toby. Our next guest is coming up after the break. So Patchouli Patterson, who's the candidate for the Greens in Scullin, um, in Melbourne will be joining us. So we'll introduce her after the break. Yeah, she's going to be great. Our guest today is Patchouli Patterson. Patch is the Greens candidate for the Labour-held seat of Scullin in Melbourne's north. She is a mentor and educator in a National Early Years Education Program and an experienced project officer with a history of working in the environmental and community services sectors. She has also worked in federal politics primarily in campaigning and constituent outreach. Patch has an amazing story of overcoming adversity and resilience. Growing up with a loving mum and family in a very musical environment, Patch would often find the family moving around various areas of subtropical northern New South Wales in what she describes as a very hippie household. In this part of the world, living in a shack isn't all that weird. But once Patch moved to Melbourne, it was evident that the family was living in poverty. Patch and her family relied on government services to survive and at one point even ended up homeless. This, however, did not stop her from gaining an education and becoming the highly skilled and successful young woman she is today. Please check out Patch's Facebook page to hear her incredible story. You can visit her Facebook and Instagram pages at patch 4 scullin That is the number four. In our conversation today, we talk about sport as a vehicle for self-change and personal growth, Patch's early life, how the poorest in our society have such little access to both green space and the stress-free time to make positive decisions for their future, the leadership crisis in Australia and our attention crisis. We also discuss a potential future for Australia, optimism and hope being the only solution for a better world, putting it all on the line as a political candidate and a moment of clarity. Thanks so much for listening to Moments of Clarity. Remember to subscribe, review and share episodes with your friends and family. You can also check out our Instagram page at Moments of Clarity Podcast or our website at moc-pod.com. Toby and I are really grateful to have Patch give us so much of her time right after a hard day's work campaigning. Patch was a brilliant guest and I have no doubt you will love her. So without further delay, here is Patchouli Patterson. Patch, welcome to Moments of Clarity. Thank you. It's very exciting. To get started, what can you tell the audience about you? Well, I guess probably the reason I'm here, largely, is um, I am running as a candidate in the federal election for the Greens, for the seat of Scarlet. But beyond that, I would say I'm really passionate about the community, about sport. I'm a mentor and educator in a early years education program. Um, so working in a lot of diverse communities. What else? I'm a Close with my family, live with my brother, yeah. And you play cricket with Matt's brother. Well, yes, sort of, against. Against. We have gone to the nets a few times and, yeah, Mick was definitely not, didn't go easy, tried to bowl some bounces. Matt will do the same in the interviews. It's a very similar (laughs) technique. (laughs) Bowling bounces. (laughs) Yeah, I had some bruises, so, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, he did not go easy, which is good. We like to stir each other up a lot. We're very hard on each other. 
um, <laughs> which is good. Great. Well, that's our connection and how we met. So, yeah, um, thanks once again for joining us. Let's start on sport and what brought you to – you mentioned you, you loved footy earlier, off-air off and, and cricket now. What are the things you love about sport and why are you – why is that part of your passion? Yeah, I think sport and being kind of a progressive person can sometimes be strange bedfellows. And, you know, I love the AFL. It has its problems, but I really do love um, – I'm more involved in footy and cricket, but I love all sport as a way to bring people together and create mm. this sort of little community of people from all different backgrounds. I think sport can be a really good vehicle for – self-change. I came to sport really late in life. I was always sort of, I don't know if I was told the narrative or I just believed it and took it on that I'm not athletic. I'm not good at sport. That's not my world. And I'm not, (laughs) I'm not very good at sport, but I love it. And pushing through and doing it. I think even when you're terrible teaches you a lot about yourself, the kind of pain you can endure, the kind of sacrifice for a common goal. I love that capacity to push you, particularly yeah. physically. It's a beautiful thing. I mean, one of the ironies is that two of the world's most sporting nations, the US and Australia, at a national level are increasingly unhealthy. Mm. Uh, and some of the things that people have attributed that to is because sports personalities and heroes get so idolised mm. that it kind of squashes out the just doing it because it's great, because you meet people. It all becomes about excellence and, and, and the uh, elite. Um, so, yeah, no, I think it's fabulous what you've just described. Because that's why we should be doing sport is to build community and you know, even on a bad day you can be great you yeah. know, at that personal level. Would you say that sport then and that personal growth led you to politics or did politics start first? Politics has definitely always been in my life. Yeah, I started volunteering with the Greens when I was 17 and – so it's always been there in the background and it's become more of my life. I'm running as a candidate a couple of times and then there'll be times where it recedes a little bit, you know, between elections. I think moving to Melbourne is when I first started playing sport. There are a lot more sporting opportunities for women. But I definitely think playing sport has helped me do things like putting my hand up to run again. Mm-hmm. It sounds naff, but it, it sort of proved that I can push through a lot and it gave me a big sense of pride that yeah. I could push through and be strong and sacrifice. And, yeah, nothing's as bad as playing footy when it's like five degrees, you're 100 points down, you're getting beaten up, you're like running around in the mud. Um, so everything's easy after that, I think. <laughs> so it's made the rest of my life seem easier, more comfortable. And when you say politics was always part of your life, you know, you started volunteering at 17, what sat behind that? In, in terms of why would politics be so central to you? Yeah, definitely. My family, I was born into a very political family. I was born outside Nimbin. Mum was a huge hippie but very politically passionate. So was my stepfather and politics was on the table for discussion at dinner. You know, mum always taught me about things at an age-appropriate level, you know, about refugees, about war, about different people's lives um, when I asked. So um, it was always there in the background, you know, social justice, the environment, um, all these questions, I think. And then 
a lot of especially left-leaning progressive people, you get to a point where you sort of become an activist and an advocate or you might go into sort of politics and the, the campaigning side of it. And you do a bit of both. I guess so. I would say I'm not a very good activist. I I see people doing amazing demonstrations and, and things that, yeah, I really admire, but it's not so much my skill level. I think my personality, my skill level. I went to uni and studied a Master of Public Policy, I think, so my skill level is just more suited to running in campaigns and supporting campaigns and that side of it. Nimbin, what was it like growing up in, in and around Nimbin? Oh, well, we, we moved around a lot. My whole family are musicians, so we kind of moved around. Um, we're a bit nomadic. But we were in Nimbin for a few years in Byron Bay, Mullumbimby. It was sort of like a dream. You're so little, so you, you have this lens on everything, but, you know, it's the early 90s. There was rainbow stuff everywhere and reggae music and beautiful markets and fresh fruit and, you know, the tropics, sort of subtropical. They're just so beautiful. And your early 90s, I guess, you're going swimming in the creek and going to the beach and there was so much freedom. Life just seemed really idyllic up there. So I'm, I'm really glad I got a taste of that subculture. It's not perfect, but it, it does have a lot to say for itself learning all that peace and nonviolence and kindness and chilling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we were actually talking earlier about urban living and how most Australians do live in sort of urban centres or suburban areas and is there an ability to connect with nature and the environment in these spaces and is that maybe why Australia has an issue with protecting the environment mm. or, you know, at least on a political level, why, why we're struggling in that space do you think that it's really important to have lived amongst nature or at least venture out often to to really connect with it yeah it's really hard because so many of the jobs and services are in the cities so you're really forced into that lifestyle um, in urban settings and a lot of places you know the suburb where I live in the northern suburbs it's one of the most concreted, devoid of trees and green spaces area. I think it does have a huge impact not being near any green spaces. And you definitely see the Greens vote is a lot higher in even just suburbs that are heavily treed with gum trees, you know, the areas that were developed more recently rather than, you know, a while back. Mm. So I definitely think it's, you know, the scientific and mental benefits of being in nature are just so well documented and it's really unfortunate that most people don't have that opportunity. The other, the, the point you made there about people that live amongst the, the trees, the gum trees, mm. um, as being attracted to the Greens as a party potentially, so there's you know, elements in Tasmania and, and all around Australia really, but it's also Melbourne mm. itself. The, the city of Melbourne, you know, has, has um, Adam Bant in it as the member and... Melbourne has a lot of parks and, and a lot of green space, but it is also a built-up city with a lot of people living on top mm. of each other. And does that play an impact perhaps in people wanting to ensure that green public space and, I guess, services and community or, or communal spaces is protected because, you know, without it you realise how how little you might actually have access to if that's not a community 
if there's mm. not a community space for everything, you actually don't have that much. Whereas out in the suburbs or areas where people have bigger homes with, you know, potential garden or, or they're just trying to look after their car in their garage every day or whatever it might be, those priorities are a little bit different and they take for granted that a lot of the world actually lacks space in, in, in urban areas. Um, yeah, so how do, you, how do you piece together that direction for inner city people being much more attracted to the Greens Party? Yeah, I think a huge amount of that is the other social policies that the Greens and Adam Bant offer and it's great it's such a safe seat for us now. But, yeah, I think COVID, particularly the lockdowns, just drove home. If you live in the inner city or even more inner suburbs, your green space might not have even been in a 5K radius or there might have been one. We definitely had that where I live where there was – one park that everybody went to and there were hundreds of people there every day. So I think that helped a sense of urgency that the sadly few green spaces we do have in inner city Melbourne, we really need to protect those and have more if possible. I mean, the Greens occupy a very interesting space politically now where in many ways, and again, this is sort of used both for and against you, depending on who's saying it, but, mm. you know, it's actually more left-wing than Labour were traditionally. Uh, and then you get others saying, oh, well, it's really just the sort of the relatively affluent middle class who can afford to support the Greens. And where I'm going with that is in my old role, we mapped all of metropolitan Melbourne for its green space and overlaid it with um, the socioeconomic indicators for Australia, the CFA index. Mm. And so there's a direct correlation between affluence and access to green space, and that's mirrored all around the world. So I wonder as well, not only about the, oh, well, you know, people in confined inner city spaces are valuing it more, but also they're better off, you know, and and there is a bit of of the Greens vote that is quite affluent, even if a lot of your policies are more targeted at social justice and, and, and so forth. Does that resonate in any way? Am I missing the point? No, I think it does resonate. I think it's a big question I think about a lot because I grew up in housing commission areas. I grew up poor and I did notice, I don't think it's that they don't vote Greens in those areas. I think they're really apathetic about politics in general often and don't see really any political party having the will or capability to turn their lives around. But then, you know, they might, individuals might feel strongly about one or two social issues or a hot button um, economic issue that comes up, like a short term tax break. You know, that can seem really desirable in the moment and that can be enough. So it's a big question of why are lower socioeconomic communities not voting more for progressive parties who, yeah, the, the policies align quite clearly with trying to improve those areas. It's a tricky one. I haven't figured it out yet. But I think when people are in poverty and when they're just operating at that level of constant stress and worry, things like politics, things like how do I find fair trade, organic food, like that's not on the priority list. It can't be. So it's probably a wider issue. Yeah, there is so much sort of research and understanding around yeah being under stress you know in a stress condition and how that affects decision making and Mm. you know choices and where your focus lies and and you mentioned those short-term 
quick incentives as well mm. as sort of fear campaigns yeah. and what they do to people that need progressive policy and, and social change to, to occur that, yeah, are often, often targeted more by conservative fear campaigns potentially and, and that actually stops positive changes happening for people that are struggling or people that are finding, you know, not necessarily struggling but struggle's part of it but it's also doing the best that everyone can on the day. You know, mm. tomorrow I need to be able to ensure that I'm not only feeding everyone but I've got, you know, these three jobs to do. I've got to get the car to the mechanic which mm. is, you know, X amount of distance where I've got to take my child to the dentist which is, you know, in the city and that's a whole day out or, you know, mm. there's all these barriers to finding a moment to make quality future decisions and mm. I almost feel that I don't know how this will be taken but there's a powerful elite in a way that that control a lot of the narrative and what happens and and it and it must be a ploy for certain people to ensure that there's enough people that feel downtrodden and apathetic because <laughs> this is communist what I'm about to say but if every <laughs> if everyone rises you know, together that that completely will topple the system. Yeah. So there's there's a, a concerted effort to ensure that people are divided amongst themselves in, in, in mm. working or, or poorer classes. Unless we stop apathy, we're never going to stop poverty. Mm. Is there a way forward that we can actually just have leaders lead and, mm. and take charge? I think it is. I'll probably sound just as socialist or whatever, but I think there is a concerted, very deliberate effort to keep wealth inequality going and to increase it because, as you touched on before, when you get to a place where you're sort of middle class or upper middle class and life's going pretty well, that's when you have time to sit back and reflect on politics, on your values, on your place in the world and are you living in alignment with with what you value and believe in. So the wealth inequality can't just be small. It has to be huge. And, I, yeah, I genuinely believe the Liberal government wants that and, and all their policies reflect that. So, yeah, leadership, it's a huge issue because we empower the leaders to, to really run with their own agenda. It's hard because, you know, I'm only 30. I've only seen my lifetime of politics but it does seem like in the past leaders were a lot more strident in leading and progressing with an agenda even when it became slightly problematic, like refugees coming to Australia in the 70s. It was the right thing to do. We had contributed to the problem and it was just push on and just do it. It's, it's not let's take endless polls and just be so petrified of losing government that we won't act on anything that... Our citizens told us they believed in. You know, fear gets in the way. Maybe people change their minds a little, but that's usually what the majority wants and then sometimes they have crises of worrying about other things and the media brings a whole other lens into it where you're getting every opposing view 24-7 and you just sort of don't know what the majority is necessarily. So I don't know what voices they're listening to. It's interesting what I sometimes wonder about this because my, my politics on this in a sense don't really matter right now but I'm happy to go on the record as saying I'm not a big fan of Tony, Tony Abbott and his policies. But arguably he showed leadership even if I fundamentally disagree with it and he, and he had an agenda which was to completely railroad the whole climate change piece. And so on the one hand 
I actually think he was a terrible leader. I think he was a you know reasonable person in opposition. I think he couldn't transition mm. from being the attack dog to actually laying out the, the vision and w- what's the brilliant place we're going to get to rather than the 1950s. But where I'm going, and I promise somewhere in this patch there is a, <laughs> a question embedded, but I mean, when we say that people used to demonstrate leadership, do we mean that there are people who sort of still stand out today with whom we agree, or is it that leadership is fundamentally different? Maybe leadership in the past, you know, reading about it, hearing about it, seems more palpable to me because it seemed so much more pragmatic. Parties feel really diametrically opposed Mm -hmm. and it's just about having a really extreme vision and you've got these really far-right parties who've come in and it feels like they're pulling the Liberals over that way. There are a couple of forces, you know, we sometimes talk about, so I'm, as you may pick up from my dodgy accent, as I'm a British-American-Australian. Uh, and one of the things, you know, as a, an import to Australia is I think Australia does an amazing thing and so many things, whether it's Hollywood, sports, in some ways commerce, where it really punches above its weight. And there are two areas where Australia's had tremendous impact around the world, and one is through Rupert Murdoch, uh, and the other is Mark Crosby and uh, so Crosby and Texter, who were the architects of John Howard's wins, who really helped politicians to move away from the idea of everyone rushing to the centre and competing over that to saying, well, actually, you win elections based on the extremes. And they were hired, um, I think they advised the Trump campaign. Um, They certainly advised uh, the Brexit campaign. Mm. And before that, David Cameron uh, as the British Prime Minister who kind of unwittingly and arrogantly set up the the foundations of Brexit. So, Mm. yeah, as I say, I think those, the combination of Murdoch looming kind of over all media Mm. uh, and, and then those political experts have fundamentally shifted the nature of politics and media over the past couple of decades or more. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I love hearing the perspectives of people who've lived in other countries because you always feel the grass is greener and you feel like um, the UK is more progressive, there's more interesting dialogue, there's more engagement in politics, but you don't actually know if that's accurate. I think it's more complex because... There's 70 million people and it's sandwiched between Europe and the US and so you've got all those influences. You know, I, I think you, you touched on, on the pandemic earlier and you know, Australia, I mean, it's too early to really know how we've done and how the world will do, but we seem at this moment in time to, for all the pain and the suffering that people felt in the time relative to others actually done okay through it in the same way that we weathered the global financial crisis quite well. And I think it's because actually you can... It's a terrible thing about Australia in some ways. We kind of can isolate when we need to. Uh, Mm. We can insulate ourselves from some of the shocks that the rest of the world feels more acutely. Mm. So there are positives to that. But when you say, you know, the grass feels greener and you look at the UK and it feels more dynamic and more progressive, I think there are elements of that. But Mm. there are also for every bit that's more progressive, something else will be more retrograde. Mm. And I, I feel like it's definitely not a comment on Australian people. I think it's the situation we've got into, especially with the housing market, where I feel like every conversation I have is about insurance or mortgages or rental prices and how it's terrible and people are in this state of stress 
and kind of they're the immediate things that are jumping out and we're talking about again and again um, and cost of living to an extent. Yeah, when you're just in that perpetual state of worrying about those things, you're not getting to necessarily maybe those deeper discussions and realising that you actually agree a lot on things and that most people are fundamentally pretty similar and the extremes don't actually speak for the majority, um, but it certainly feels that way. And, yeah, the media has a huge hand in that. It's so unregulated. It's scary what can be spread. And the media and social media as well and even watching the press conferences at the moment with Albanese and Morrison and the, and the, and the, the pack of journalists just screaming and trying to throw them off and get them to say something that mm. will be newsworthy. You know, they can sell papers or ads on TV or whatever it might be for the next 24 hours rather than actually trying to tell the public what they should know, mm. you know, in terms of, you know, so they can be well-informed with the upcoming election. And, yeah, it's hard to know. I go often in my own mind, it's like the chicken and the egg situation. Is it mm. the people don't want to read analysis and they're not going to bother with that? So why would these, you know, profit-driven systems want to even go down there and, and lose a marketplace or you lose their market? Or is it that we've been trained, you know, as people mm. to to want that drama and want that constant buzz of, oh, what's going on next? Let's, you know, let's be outraged. Let's let's um, gossip about this. And we just lose the meaning. And, you know, reality TV's been doing that, mm. Murdoch Media, social media and, you know, with Twitter, for example, it's all about the most outrageous mm. tweets that get the most likes or retweets rather than, you know, yeah. the most measured ones. And, yeah, it's failing us and it's failing us in terms of our scarcity of attention and mm. focus as well as with our mortgage stress. There's scarcity of our ability to be free in, mm. in you know, owning property or owning our own home, um, having the freedom to make decisions because we don't have this horrible looming interest rate rise coming where people are going to just, you know, start defaulting on their homes. That's the fear. Mm. Um, but we're not actually making any progress in fixing the underlying systemic problems that would help everyone but because and, – and we refuse to look at that as individuals because we're worried about our own individual situation. If we do X, my house might go down by $100,000 or whatever, mm. which will put me in a, you know, horrible position. That was my dream to, to get a property that went up in price. But there's so many sacrifices and long-term devastation on the way if we keep going in that really individual mm. way – I guess through your discussion, through your job and, and being a part of the Greens, what reaction do you get? Mm. I think you touched on social media and phones. and I think that can't be underestimated. I'm starting increasingly to feel, I've read a few books about it recently, so maybe that's why it's on the brain, but I really am, am finding that social media and smartphones so toxic and it's really hard to get even a minute of genuine connection because even if people put the phone down, which often people won't even put their phone down when they're talking to you anymore, apparently it takes something like 20 minutes to get out of that mindset um, and to go back to that sort of mental space where you're connecting and you're really engaging with something else that's not the phone. I think that's a huge thing that's really keeping us apart as people 
think that's why I love community sport. It's sort of something where you have to be off the phone, you have to connect. But I find when I do chat with people, they are really positive about me running. They're interested. They want to know what our ideas are. But I'm finding opportunities for that limited, particularly, you know, in Scullin, I think organic smaller meeting places are in shorter supply than maybe some other areas. Um, So we've got lots of big shopping centres, but I think they're really designed to have that stress response. I don't think it's always a place where you can really connect with people. And, you know, often you're there because you're stressed out and you need something urgently. But I think that social media one is a huge one for me that I'm really worried. I don't really know the way through short of yelling at people to get off their phones, <laughs> which I do sometimes to my friends. Yeah, that one that one worries me. And, and just the way they're engineered, that only really short things will grab people's attention. Like I did a speech for my campaign launch and it was nine minutes long and I thought no one will watch this. Like why are you even posting it? Cut it into smaller pieces and just post 30-second bits but I'm not that tech savvy. So I just posted the whole thing and I was really actually surprised and touched that a lot of people did watch it in full. Yeah, that's sort of where we've gotten to. We like a nine-minute video of me pouring my heart out, no one will watch it, you know. Mm. So it's a bit of a worry. You started to reveal a certain revolutionary element in your thinking in, in, in the, you know, the elites trying to keep us down because what happened if we rose up all together and so forth. And, and obviously there's a theme in, in, in what we're talking about, um, Patch, in, in terms of the, the real divisions in society and be that driven by socioeconomic circumstance or be it uh, social media and, or the confluence of all of these things. And the other bit of context is that talking we touched on mentioned Brexit and you know the US sort yeah. of during and so Brexit was really a manifestation uh, of real challenge and dissatisfaction amongst people within the UK who had been essentially abandoned by elites and mainstream politics, and they had a target. It was Europe, and in the US they were going to drain the swamp which obviously we know perversely ended up in more corruption and really questionable activities, but that's not the point. In Australia, if we, you know, this is a complete hypothetical, but what would it look like if it all went over the next few years, the divisions get worse, it goes to hell in a handcart. You said where the challenge is apathy, but apathy and revolution are poles apart. So, so what does bedlam at an Australian political level look like? I often wonder about that. I have a tendency to be a little more anxious and let my mind race sometimes and I sort of see the weather's pretty weird, even in Melbourne. I thought it was hotter than usual and the flooding. I start to wonder maybe it doesn't level out. Maybe we don't stay under 1.5 degrees. Maybe, you know, chaos happens and people just turn on each other. You know, things you see overseas that you could never dream of. We had like little shades of it during COVID, the protesters in Melbourne, around the shrine. You never really see that kind of thing, certainly not in my lifetime. 
And you, you do worry, is that where it could get to? If we don't arrest this inequality and there's just so many people with nothing left to lose, does it go to rioting? Does it go to violence? Yeah, that scarcity, what it could look like. And just further demonization of other people. It's hard, you know, I'm in my lefty bubble to a degree. I, I sort of think nobody would turn on refugees and migrants. Like no one would blame them for scarcity. No one would just take it into their own hands to steal people's things. But you don't know. Yeah, I like to think it wouldn't get to that point. But I feel like we're on a precipice where climate change and scarcity, you know, resources could lead to something like that. No, what do you think? <laughs> it made me think about discussions I've had with people that are planning to vote Liberal or even, you know, United Australia or something, where they feel that things are pretty good or that they feel like everything's okay. Why change things? You know, things are great. And I don't see, and I think most people that feel that progress is necessary, that means they want some sort of change. Something is wrong. We can improve something which means that there is, you know, mm. there's a problem somewhere. And in my lefty bubble in a way too, I, I'm just often having conversations about what could happen here. So let's, let's, let's go into this. COVID was the big one. I mm. thought that COVID was a, a moment where people would realise that, hey, our local community matters. You know, mm. what happens within our bubble um, really matters. So let's, you know, protect our na- natural spaces. Talk to our neighbours. And people started doing that, you know, almost at the start. And you go, oh, Australia's pretty good. You know, the world's mm. pretty good when you see people in Italian towers singing down the street or, you know, whatever it might be. But not soon after you had people that were stuck in their homes, isolated, being radicalised online. Mm. And that led to them being involved in really dangerous, potentially horrific protests where, mm. you know, some severe violence could have been done. So we saw that as they march across the Westgate Bridge or to the Shrine or whatever in Australia or around Canberra with the, mm. the, the trucks and the cars and all that. But what happened in Ottawa and what happened on January 6th in, in Washington, that, that's not far away from, from here. Mm. And that, I think, has to do with our media. And, and I think it's the Murdoch media. I think it's the social media. I think it's, it's the division that is now required. I think, Toby, you mentioned earlier that we have to get to the extremes to win elections. It's also to sell newspapers or to to have our tweets read. Um, you, you do need to almost become extreme and have a, a viewpoint. And and I've noticed that more and more. There's less and less in it together and we have to create an enemy. So what does that look like in Australia? It's definitely more of these Cronulla riot style events. So, you know, attacks on, on migrant communities. It would be anti-establishment. I talked about revolution before. I'm definitely not a revolutionary. I'm, I'm a liberal reformist. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and what I mean, I don't believe in upturning everything. I think Australia is amazing. I mean, I love that we've got the CSIRO. I love that we've got the best hospitals in the world, that we've got the, mm. you know, electoral commission that protects, you know, our democracy. We've got rules, regulations and things in place that make this democracy great. But that is slowly but surely being dismantled in my opinion. We are starting mm. to feel that our elections might not be trustworthy when we've got the most trustworthy elections in the world. We're, we're starting to feel that the medical community are against us with the vac- vaccinations. You know, if a nurse is sticking it in your arm, 
that, does that mean you just don't trust nurses and doctors and whoever anymore? Or our, our universities are being defunded mm. and seen as, oh, that's the elites. So that question about the elites, when I talk about elites, I'm not talking about universities and med- medical professionals and academics. I'm talking about mining <laughs> companies. I'm talking about, you know, fossil fuel executives or even beyond that, lobbyists and people that are mm. actively but secretly trying to undermine our democracy and our institutions and our and are trying to deregulate us. And I think that that's just the beginning. Once they've won in their quest to deregulate and cause fear and distrust, we will end up in a position where we are turning on each other. We're more violent at worst. The, the biggest problem, however... Oh, you weren't even there. You're just warming up. <laughs> the biggest problem is that we do not act on things that you meant on climate. We need to be unified and together to act on climate, not only in Australia but as a globe. So Brexit means that there's less cooperation between the UK and Europe. The Democrats and the Republicans wanting to begin a civil war in a way in the US stops action on climate occurring. Mm. This Russian attack on Ukraine stops action on climate change happening, um, mm. although it shouldn't. You know, all of these things are, are potential potential pivot points for us to actually do more. But people they tend to say, oh, I'm scared, let's go back into our shell, let's go back. And if we do that enough, we're, we're going to go back and slide back at a snail's pace of the 50s and stuck in our shells mm. and not know what to do next. But we need collaboration, trust in institutions and togetherness to fix things on a local national and international level like the climate like pandemics in the future that are likely to come Mm. deforestation biodiversity loss you know we're falling apart scientifically yeah but the scientists are now the the elite that nobody or that a lot of people don't trust when we actually shouldn't be trusting the the polluters and the people trying to break down our systems i I feel and that's and that's where australia's heading um Mm. pretty quickly i'm afraid yeah, that anti-intellectualism is fascinating. It seemed to happen a lot in the US as well under Trump. And when you look back at history, it was really extreme despots and dictators who were anti-intellectualism and killed all the university professors or marched them out into the country. And yet people are happy to align themselves with that these days. It's It's interesting. I guess they don't necessarily draw that parallel but I think people should be thinking deeply about these things and drawing those parallels and I don't know what stops stops it I guess I'm privileged to have an upbringing where things like that were really discussed but I don't know if it's mortality I don't know if it's yeah just existential dread that the knee-jerk reaction even for someone like me is oh well maybe I don't bother Maybe it's all going to hell anyway. If I can save up some money, at least I can look after me and my family if things go really badly. Like maybe stop putting in the effort, stop fighting. You know, you have those moments of thinking that. And it's it's sort of our – the bigger the problem, the less it seems like there's a solution to it. And so just don't do anything. But there are solutions. People are showing us the solutions and the money for the solutions is there. But it's just this – Um, It feels like a lack of of will and the election will be a huge statement as to whether it feels like the majority have turned the corner on climate change and it's not a question anymore that we need to do significant things to arrest it. 
but that'll be the big May 21 will be a, a big day, a real turning point, positively or negatively. And picking up that phrase positively or negatively, so I asked a question that teed us up for a bit of a negative, <laughs> a, a slightly dark uh, bit of the conversation. But I mean, the great thing, I, I've never summoned the courage. I've never been as bold as you have, Patch, to go out and, and campaign and, and, and to put myself out there uh, as a political candidate. Um, I'm always very, whether or not I agree with people's politics, um, as it happens, I think I probably align quite well with yours, but I'm always impressed. I think there's always something about people who are willing to take that on. So anyway, hats off to you. One of the things through work that I do do with communities that is always uplifting is is people's spirit, whether at the collective, the individual and so on. And so my counter to question to if it goes really wrong, where do we end up is what are the things that you're at when you're out every day, however hard it is when it's only five degrees and you're knocking the doors, but what are, those, what are the things that give you real lift where you just go, I know why I do this and it's because of... Mm, I think there's sort of two parts to it because you might go through periods where you feel like you want to stop and you're not feeling very optimistic. I think there's a there's a misconception that candidates are always super optimistic and feeling really positive and really, you know, in tune and like the message is cutting through. You have really rough days, but the only choice is optimism. I can't see another way to improve anything. So I'd rather have tried than not tried. I, I At least I can look back and I tried whatever, you know, the outcome is. But I think what keeps me going, like being out in nature, straight away you look at a gum tree, you look at an amazing flower and I just think I have to save this. That sounds so hippie. But gum trees are amazing. I think if you look at a gum tree, you think what if there were none of these left? But I think yeah, people are amazing. I work with so many amazing people through the job I do and just people you meet out on the street, you know, you have a little interaction, a chat. Individually, people are so incredible and I think I do believe they're inherently good and everybody is really trying their best, which looks very different on different days. But one-on-one, people are so strong and even with so many structural things causing inequality and keeping them in a situation of stress. They're doing so much more for their communities or their families or even themselves. They're keeping on going. They're just amazing in the face of all that. And that just makes you you realise, you know, it's like that saying, you can't see the forest for the trees. Like you can have a feeling that society is a certain way, but really one-on-one when you actually talk to people they're amazing and they're really open-minded to my ideas. You know, I have lots of friends who are, you know, cattle farmers or tradies and they might start out a certain way, but the longer we chat, we've really come to appreciate each other's points of view. And if we're not completely aligned, we agree on a lot of stuff still and there's like a middle ground socially and also politically and in terms of legislation that I think we could both get to. So it's, it's very rare to meet those extreme, selfish people who really don't want to do anything positive for the community, the planet. So, yeah, one-on-one, just even if you'll be out at a store for even five minutes, guaranteed you'll chat to a nurse who's been 
nursing for 30 years, all throughout the pandemic, no wage increase and just sacrifices everything. And that just makes you think, yeah, there's something really good worth fighting for here. Thanks, Patch. It made me reflect on my negativity a moment ago, which you (laughs) did ask for it, Toby, so I won't beat myself up too badly. But the only reason I do this podcast or talk to people or or want to vote for Progressive... Because he wants to hang out with me. He didn't know how to ask me directly. (laughs) Other than the excuse to hang out with fine, fine people, including you, Toby, and you, Patch, is because I believe that people deserve the best in life because everyone is inherently good. And mm. well, most people, well, everyone is inherently good and, and many people are um, faced with, you know, X amount of challenges that maybe turn them to to make some poor decisions or to, to, mm. to feel resentment towards the world and want to and portray that in some way. Mm. And, and we have to remember that, that people have been hurt and suffered and cast out of groups, whatever it might be, and are hurting and potentially lash out almost like a, a frightened, weak animal in mm. a way like we are. We're animals. So so we, if we think about society in that regard, then even at our at our worst when someone is acting in a in a horrible way, to just to 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 really feel empathy for that person and understand and actually want to help that person is, is really important. And and on From that revolutionary to Buddhist in one easy step. <laughs> well, there are yeah. rev- revolutionary Buddhists around. Um, <laughs> I'm not willing to set myself alight at any time soon, though. Um, <laughs> I can't imagine doing that. Um, but yeah, so so everything, and I, I feel that you're doing the same. I feel that there's this push to constantly go to the negative, like oh, they're at fault. It's mm. it's their fault, or we're not making this change because of those people. But in reality. We all want similar things and I, I often talk about values. If only we understood how alike we are through conversation, putting the phone away, deep and meaningful mm. over time and trust, we'd be able to change everything. Yeah. And that is why I feel so passionately about community and community spaces and, and investing in that because we need to invest in that so that people will move into those spaces and discuss and talk and, and feel together and, and you mentioned Brexit and people's um, ability earlier, Toby, that they had something to aim for. It was Europe, but there was an outcome. We want Brexit. You know, imagine we could mm. do that with everyone for we want better health outcomes. <laughs> you know, we want to close the gap. We want to stop tax evasion of the super rich so that we can invest that mm. money into the things that we need or whatever it might be, climate action. And, yeah, one thing that's in my very local space is the Preston market. Mm. You mentioned supermarket, you know, the only place to go is shopping centres in Scullin really or the one park. The opposite happens at the Preston Market. You know, I go there often and I'm always running into someone, having a conversation, someone will uh, tap me on the shoulder, can you tell me about this or show me this Mm. place? And then we talk for 20 minutes while I'm walking them around or there's just always big groups of people that are from such diverse backgrounds talking, engaging, getting along together in this open space where you've got the fishmonger hanging around the fruit, you know, the fruiterer with someone, you know, that comes in with their, the electric bike, you know, mm. riding in that obviously is some sort of uh, better off in, 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 in various regards, the way they're dressed and stuff. They walk in and they are talking to the fishmonger and the fruiterer about the same common cause, you know, which you mm. would never get 
never get in a in a um, shopping centre. As you said, it's it's there for stress, not to hang about mm. and try different things and meet new people. So we need to embrace and invest in that. So that's that. That's my reaction to, <laughs> to that. But one thing I did want to touch on for you, Patch, is you talked about growing up in and around sort of the commission housing space and, and you know, being poorer. Mm. Yet how did you and your family manage to, I guess, embrace deep, meaningful – I'm not saying that people in all those um, conditions don't have great conversation, but mm. how was it that you were able to not be just faced with the daily stress and, and never think about these bigger picture issues? What, what was it about you and your family and, and specifically that allowed you to have these deep and meaningful broader picture discussions rather than just thinking about tomorrow? Mm. Well, I think I'm really lucky in a sense that when we talk about poverty and it being intergenerational, I don't think we had that necessarily. My mum's family, you know, her parents, one was from the country, one had migrated from Scotland um, and they were working class but had gotten to a point of being pretty comfortable and my mum went to a very nice school. So she received that really high-quality education. She hung out with people who were culturally diverse. She hung out in the art scene. So I think she'd had such a, a great upbringing that even though we found ourselves in a situation where we were in poverty, she had all that there, all those ideas, that art, that music um, that she shared with us. Yeah, I think she must have just been really strong to try to keep that fun. Like I know even though we were so poor, she tried to keep things fun, you know, turn them into a game and like make things special and have those conversations, show us records, talk about music, talk about cool things from her past, talk about other countries, talk about spirituality, you know, and just give us lots of different ideas and options in life. So I think that could have been very different, you know, if she had grown up in a really traumatic, abusive, you know, household, she might not have had that capacity to be there for us and to to provide that to us. So in a sense we were sort of lucky but we just wound up in that situation where, yeah, we were really poor and, you know, there's good times and bad times. At the best of times, you know, we were living in quite nice places in the bush, um, things were okay, you know, enough food, listening to records, reading, you know. And we had a good family around us. But um, at the worst of times, it was just stress and no food for days. And you could tell she was stressed and upset and her and my stepdad would, you know, they were clearly really stressed out and, you know, they weren't the best times, you know, those days. But there was still enough of there in there, in there, you know, and she really values education. So she made sure that whatever it took, I got to school, I got my education past year 12 um, got scholarships to different schools like she knew where to go to find out that information which a lot of people just wouldn't even know like you can approach a high school and you can get scholarships you can get some help if you need lots of people don't know where to go for that or they face racism in those institutions that keeps them out of things like that so you know within being poor we still had some layers of privilege you know not to undermine it but I think that's probably why. Yeah. And you also mentioned just sort of 
going almost back to the beginning and, and your family and being musicians and so forth. And one of the things that struck me when you mentioned that was what you do now is that you're a performer uh, in many ways. As a politician, you're taking centre stage and so forth. And I was wondering, a combination of that and also the sport and the enjoyment you get, to what extent the performance element of your background and what you've taken forward have played a part, if at all? Mm. It's an interesting one. My whole family musicians, all of them. My mum did a lot of drama. She went to, you know, acting school with Guy Pearce. My brother did a bit of drama. So it's funny I didn't wind up being a musician, though I'm thankful when I look at how little money my siblings have to live on as musicians. (laughs) But, yeah, I would say there is a, yeah, not so much performing but putting yourself out there. I think drama is one of those things that can be in role play and improv. It can be really stressful. So being that way inclined that you can quite easily get up and, you know, as a political candidate, you're sort of saying, I have the answers, listen to me and help me and volunteer for me and help get my party elected. So it does take a certain level of confidence, I guess. Though There's some great candidates who are quite reluctant and shy, but people encourage them to run. Certainly having a very outgoing, loud family helped me nurture that in myself and be quite confident, yeah, to put myself out there. I'm always the loud one, the one sort of organising things, doing the speeches, like I'll do it. So, yeah, it's probably pretty natural to to be a candidate. And while it was natural, you know, for all of the music you just laid out, and as you know, what we always build to, in this podcast is your moment of clarity. So at some point you took all of that upbringing and the natural instincts and there was something that you said, I'm going to run. What was your moment of clarity? What made you do that? I was thinking about this. I thought you'd ask. And I was thinking there were probably a few key things that made me not necessarily run as a candidate but set those preconditions. And I think my dad... Um, my stepdad passing away when I was 20 would have been one of those big ones like, oh, God, I think you know you could die at any moment. But when you get that visceral, it, it happens when you lose someone and you really face that and you think about it and you think, would I be happy if I died tomorrow? Like have I been doing all the things I claim to care about? Am I living in alignment with my values? And for me it was a bit like, well, a, a bit, but you could do so much more. Like really fight for it. If you care about the climate, if you care about a key thing at the time was when offshore processing of people seeking asylum was sort of supported, that was a huge thing. If you care about these people, you've got to run, you've got to do more, volunteer more hours, you know, if that means giving up some nights going out, if that means giving up some of your I guess, comfort. Running as a candidate, you are uncomfortable sometimes. You know, you're nervous. You're putting yourself in rooms where people don't know you. You're public speaking a lot. You're door knocking. It requires a level of, yeah, putting yourself through discomfort. That was just, yeah, I think when that happened, I sort of did a bit of soul searching for a few months and I came to that decision that I needed to do more and then I wasn't happy with the way I had been living necessarily, you know, there were good elements but it was still a bit self-serving. And, yeah, and then 
as as usually happens, someone taps you on the shoulder and says, you'd be a really good candidate. And so I I ran for Karangamite when I was 25. I'd been a sort of support candidate before, um, so number two in the upper house, so you don't really get elected. But, yeah, and running for Karangamite was an amazing experience, really tough but really good. And I think after that I decided this is something I can do. This is a way I can contribute, you know, this is my skill set, along with, you know, other things you need to do all the time. Lots of things to reduce your impact on the environment, be kinder to other people in the community, just the way you live your life. But it's a part of that. Thanks, Patch. Where can people find out more about you and follow the work that you're doing? Yeah. Well, we have an Instagram page, patch for Scullin. It's the number four, not the word four. So, you know, it's cool. And a Facebook page as well, which is also Patch for Scullin. That's where we post a lot of the campaign things we're doing and it's the best way to get in touch with a direct message. Also, the election's in a couple of weeks, so it'll be wrapping up, but I still think that's the best way to get in touch. I think they're your go-to places and this podcast now. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us, Pat. Yeah, thank you very much. You've been really generous. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.